The bread boys are pretty good representation of what they're like at their worst. Some of them are very nice. Some of my best friends are boys. <laughs> Who needs boys, anyway? Ariana wasn't about to start talking to herself, so she addressed her comment to the half-open door between her tiny new kitchen and her tinier new bedroom. No one. That's who. She sank her fists into the bowl. Maybe a lot of different genres. I'm uncomfortable with genre. It feels very restrictive. You know, it's like gender. It's just... I can't relate to any of it. It's just a bunch of made-up arbitrary categories that label some said. She didn't have anywhere to go, but it was nice to be reminded she could. The new house didn't own her. No one did. The house was great. Everything is haunted. The world in the 21st century is just a fundamentally haunted place. We're all just living in a colossal ghost story <laughs> that never ends. It's just and I just thought the pipes needed fixing. Hello and welcome to the Spooky Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. In this winter series, we've already heard from Linda Mannheim, who resolved the burning question of the Hampstead novel. Okay, you're really bummed out living in your upper-middle-class suburb. Why don't you move? <laughs> and from Richard Smith, who gave us a little family history. I was born in Wakefield, grew up in Wakefield, live in Bradford, have lived in Leeds. And yet, Over the next few weeks, we'll be welcoming Robert Newworth and Liam Hogan. But this time, we're talking transformation and the patriarchy with Ariel, Mark and Jack. When they joined us down the line from Nova Scotia, they started with a brief reading from their story, The Bread Boy. Who needs boys, anyway? Ariana wasn't about to start talking to herself, so she addressed her comment to the half-open door between her tiny new kitchen and her tinier new bedroom. No one. That's who. She sank her fists into the bowl of pillowy dough, feeling very much like no one at all. The satiny skin of developing gluten enveloped her bloody knuckles, its sticky innards warm from the long first rise beside the sunny window. The new house was appallingly quiet. It only spoke when Ariana opened or shut the bedroom door, which hung so crookedly on its single rusted hinge that it stayed neither properly open nor shut without a good hard kick. She kept putting oil, doorstops, and new hinges on her shopping lists and coming home without them. She wasn't used to living alone anymore. Shreds of dough clung to her thumbs when she pulled herself out of the mixing bowl. The salt wind blowing through the window lent the spiky knobs a hint of crustacean charm. She pinched crab claw shapes from the air until the lack of a laughing audience made her feel even less like an entire person. Six weeks after moving in, Ariana hadn't unpacked her suitcase. Every time she took her laundry down from the lion's drug across the backyard, she threw it, unfolded, into the welcoming maw of her gaping bag. We can leave here any time we want, the heap said. She didn't have anywhere to go, but it was nice to be reminded she could. The new house didn't own her. No one did. The house was grey, inside and out. It had just one story, no basement, no attic, with a bedroom, a bathroom, an old-fashioned pantry, and a long room that served for cooking and all the rest of living. The owner's name was Ella. Except when I'm cleaning the chimney, she said, croaking out a briny smoker's laugh. Then you can call me Cinderella. Send me one of them handsome princes, too, 
a nice strong one with plenty of energy, if you feel me. She lived down by the beach. I don't care if you paint the walls hot pink, Ella said when she handed Ariana the tarnished keys, so long as you keep the grass cut and don't burn the whole place down with that backyard oven. Ariana jiggled the front door key, feeling something that might have been anticipation. What if I only burn part of the place down? Ella croaked her appreciation. Oh, you and I are going to get along just fine. Will Ella get her handsome prince? Is Ariana some kind of dangerous pyromaniac? And just what is she making with all that dough? To find out, head to fictional.world and subscribe. You'll get a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics from all round the world for £20. With appetite well and truly whetted, I asked Mark and Jack about the recipe for a story like The Bread Boy. The Bread Boy is absolutely a product of extreme isolation. I wrote the first draft of it in the summer of 2020, maybe. We're talking COVID. Yeah, so, you know, there was a pandemic. I was living in Halifax, Nova Scotia at the time, which had really, really strict lockdowns. You weren't allowed to leave your neighborhood to go for a walk somewhere else. So I was living in a small apartment with no outdoor space. And the summer before COVID, I had gotten really sick. My life was already quite isolated. I didn't have a diagnosis at the time, but was later diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And at home with chronic fatigue syndrome, in lockdown, dreaming of being in a house by the sea <laughs> and being able to go for walks on the beach. So you weren't in the countryside. You were actually you're still in the city, but you were isolated nevertheless. Exactly. Dreaming of the kind of isolation that there is in The Bread Boy, which is very much like where I live now. I do live in a strange, creaky old house. I can walk to the beach. <laughs> I have, a, I have strange neighbours. Um, I don't have a backyard oven yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you imagined yourself into your own story? A, a little bit. I wouldn't want the bread boy. <laughs> um, Wait for the oven. Yeah, yeah. I think that I'll make sure I build a nice small oven when I get to the backyard <laughs> oven building time. Much safer. Yeah, much safer. <laughs> Just stick with normal little round loaves. <laughs> so there you were in your apartment, cut off from the world, and then this story happens. So where are the tendrils? Where are the sparks? Part of it was the baking thing. Everyone took up baking during the pandemic. It was very trendy to start baking bread. I had, at that point, been baking sourdough for years, so... You were there first! <laughs> I was a person that people came to during the pandemic. People were coming by to get little jars of sourdough culture off my doorstep and, you know, emailing <laughs> me frantically with their bread problems. So bread was really one of the only points of connection for me. I wasn't working. I was really ill. I was spending a lot of time lying on the floor. I couldn't read. I couldn't watch things. You know, I would bake a loaf of bread and then be too worn out to do anything else for three days. But in the meantime, people would be emailing me about their bread problems. And I just sort of got bread problems in my head. <laughs> you know, I was also very lonely. I lived with my partner at the time, so it could have been worse. I'm sure there were much worse people to be that isolated with, but he was the only person that I saw for months and months and months and months. And he was 
an essential worker, so he was out most days of the week for, you know, 10 hours a day. So, you know, five days a week, 10 hours a day, just home alone, really wishing I had someone to talk to. Yeah, just making up imaginary friends for myself, really. <laughs> we all kind of, to lesser or greater extents, lived through that experience. Yeah, But exactly. it's kind of difficult to remember quite how intense it was. It really is. The Bread Boy is part of a a body of work that really started during the that period of my life. I had just graduated university as well, so like that had ended. I had left my job because I was too ill to keep working. I was working as a bicycle mechanic, which is quite physical, and cycling 30 kilometers a day for my commute, and you know, it was impossible. <laughs> I just started writing. The only thing I could do was make up these little stories. It was very new for me at that point. I had only written a little bit. I kept coming back to ideas about connections. I have a whole book of them now that's just stories about connections that are formed in really strange, isolated and alienated places. In the past week, I've been putting together the final manuscript for this book and going back over all the stories and seeing they're all different, but they've all got these very shared themes of just really desperately searching for some form of connection in strange and lonely places. Those connections often being quite warped. Sometimes when you're making connections from a place of desperation, they can be really misshapen. One of the things about chronic fatigue syndrome is that it's in waves, it's up and down, as I understand it. Were there times when you couldn't even write, all you could do was think? Yeah, there absolutely were. At the beginning of the chronic fatigue era of my life, which continues to this day, I was also struggling with post-concussion syndrome. I'd had a bad concussion and... I couldn't really look at screens very much. I could write a little bit in a notebook, but then just like holding the pencil and moving it across the page, it would wear me out. So there was a lot of thinking as much as I've learned to edit while I write a story. It's just from the necessary economy of being worn out by the act of writing down a sentence. So I'd rather not have to write it down too many more times. because (laughs) (laughs) That's very practical. Get it done, get it done once. I haven't quite mastered the art of just getting it done once. When I write, I'll read the sentences out loud to myself, or I'll say them before I write them down to see how they sound, how they flow, how they might fall on the page, how they would sound if they were written down, and then I read them out loud. And if I get it so that it feels right when I say it out loud, then that's a sentence that I'll probably only have to write once. The story rotates twice around the pivot of that oven big enough to burn a body. Were you aiming towards those two moments of change right from when you started, or did they come as a surprise to you as well? They definitely came as a surprise. The Bread Boy is a little bit too strange in some way. Um, I've gotten a lot of really nasty rejection notes for it. It's been described by various editors as things like bizarre and disturbing. Bizarre and disturbing might be a form of praise. I would think so, but you know, it was in the context of a nasty rejection note. (laughs) Sort of a how dare you send me something like this awful form of torment. (laughs) Well, we can do bizarre and disturbing right here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I just, I'll I'll be perfectly honest and say that The Bread Boy found its way to fictionable because I'm a big fan of another author you've published, Sean Burney. His work is also, I think, often quite bizarre and disturbing and very much informed by chronic fatigue syndrome. I've been thinking a lot lately about this idea of sort of a literature of chronic fatigue syndrome work that just comes from a place of feeling absolutely overwhelmed by a relentless world. And I've started just 
submitting my stories that are hard to place that have that feeling, that very chronic fatigue literature kind of feeling to places that have published Chong's work, because I think maybe if they'll, if they'll understand what he does, there's a chance they'll understand what I do. <laughs> he talked very movingly on the podcast about his own experience with chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, he did. For me, he's the most relatable writer that I've read, I think, just even though, you know, on balance, I imagine we live very different lives. But just having this shared experience of having an understudied illness that there isn't really a lot of treatment for, that you just have to endure. Part of why I write is to process those things in life that cannot be changed. There's nothing you can do about so many things. You just have to endure them and keep choosing to endure something that there is no reason to believe there will be a respite from at any point. You will live with this thing until you no longer live. <laughs> this feels a very contemporary experience because living as we are in the latest phase of turbo capitalism with the climate emergency on every side it's natural for us all to feel a little overwhelmed it's natural for us all to feel like there are things about our situations that we'd love to change but we just can't yeah i think that's absolutely true when i think about a literature of chronic fatigue it seems like the most 21st century form of literature that one can imagine you know regardless of whether or not someone has a diagnosable illness that's related to that overwhelming exhaustion of just being alive in an area where, you know, the news is all about billionaires and the rest of us have got student loans will never pay off. I think it is something that a lot of people can relate to because who among us doesn't have that feeling that almost everything in life is completely outside of our control, no matter how hard we work, no matter how good we try to be, it will never be enough. It's one of those things that when you stop to think about it, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And for me, that's certainly one of the reasons that a lot of my stories come out as horror stories. I think a lot of what I write could be categorized as maybe a lot of different genres. I'm uncomfortable with genre. It feels very restrictive. You know, it's like gender. It's just, I can't relate to any of it. It's just a bunch of made up arbitrary categories that label something for the purposes of marketing or making assumptions about what a story or a person will be like. And I find that wretched and exhausting. I would like a story to just be a story and not have to think about what kind of a story it is, really. But one has to. If you write a story and you want to submit it to magazines, then you have to think, you know, a little bit about genre and the appropriateness of a particular text for a particular venue and a particular readership uncomfortable though it might be. <laughs> Even if you're not going to label it with a genre, why should you? It's perhaps a bizarre and disturbing story nevertheless. Mm. Indeed. <laughs> One could apply that label, I think, to many of my stories. The Fred Boy starts with a question, who needs boys anyway? And when he turns up, the Bread Boy himself is seven sorts of jerk. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. In your recent fiction, like The Bleak Communion of Abandoned Things or Two for Tea, the boys are pretty reliably awful. So I guess the obvious question is, who needs boys anyway? It is a good question. Apparently the answer is not me. <laughs> 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 you know, I think that like many people, I have at various points in my life tried to figure out whether or not I did in fact need boys. I am happily married now, but not to someone who identifies as a boy. 
my spouse and I are both non-binary. We both find gender to be deeply uncomfortable <laughs> and do not wish to be tarred with its brush. <laughs> it was something I was figuring out still when I wrote The Bread Boy. And I think I was in the end stages of the era of my life that had space for boys. <laughs> <laughs> They're all so bad. They're awful. They're terrible jerks. Uh, I mean, is this partly your own experience or are you partly writing against all those non-awful boys who are hanging around on the bookshelves already? There is certainly personal experience of mine in many of my stories. I have had a number of experiences of boys who were awful. Quite possibly, those boys would say that it was me who was awful. There's always more than one side to every story of that kind. But my experience of boys is generally that they're awful. <laughs> and that the bread boy is a pretty good representation <laughs> of what they're like at their worst. Some of them are very nice. Some of my best friends are boys. <laughs> Can I just apologise for, broadly speaking, all the boys? Can I say sorry? <laughs> At this moment. <laughs> in Two for Tea, Jenna says that the cave was the only place where she could let loose and be herself out loud without ruining everything. And there's the narrator in The Bleak Communion of Abandoned Things who goes to the isolated house just to hole up. Even Ariana in The Bread Boy has been driven away from the city. Does the all-pervasive nature of the patriarchy mean that the only viable option for individuals is to retreat? I think that's a really good question. I think that in this area, as in many areas of life, individual variability is a very applicable concept. For me, all of my experiences of personal relationships are also filtered through having an exhausting illness that is made worse by noise and light and smells. I had to move away from the city because I developed allergies to cleaning chemicals and fragrance chemicals and just you know, air fresheners in the hallways of my apartment building, my throat would start to swell shut. It was very, very frightening. And for me, the answer to everything has just been to live somewhere very quiet in an environment where I'm able to have as much control as possible over my direct surroundings, um, the sounds that I hear in a day. I live on a road that maybe 10 or 20 cars will go by over the course of an entire day. There is no nighttime traffic. It is what some would describe as appallingly quiet. But for me, that is how my nervous system is able to recover from everything that overwhelms it, everything that is just too much for me. I don't think it's a thing that would work for everyone. I have always, since my childhood, been what I would guess you would have to describe as an extreme introvert. I'm happiest when I'm alone with a stack of books in as quiet an environment as possible. <laughs> I'm the kind of person who uses noise-canceling headphones in my isolated house that doesn't have traffic or other people, really, just to get more quiet. <laughs> if the city is a kind of a full bandwidth assault across light, sound, chemicals, is retreat the only option for you personally? For me personally, it is. I have tried... A number of different options. I tried moving to a different city. I have tried living in several different kinds of environments. But for me, just living in this quiet, calm house with my spouse and our cat, who is a very calm and well-behaved cat, <laughs> it's the thing that 
means I'm able in a day to go for a walk and write a story and do the dishes and cook and do the laundry and whatever bits of work I'm currently doing. I can do all of those things because I'm not being worn down by all of the extra stimuli of a life in an urban setting where there's just more to cope with. I want to ask about fighting back, whether that's a possibility as well. I think that's a really good question. I think for me, the way that I fight back is through my writing. At this point in my life, it's not really physically possible for me if I try to be in those settings that overwhelm me. If I do too many tasks in a day or if I do something that's stressful for me, I might have to take the next day off and just lie in bed and read. Otherwise, I'll get dizzy spells and fall down the stairs. It can be pretty extreme. But if I'm in a setting that's more overwhelming, I might end up in bed for a week. When I first got diagnosed with chronic fatigue, there's actually a clinic in Nova Scotia that specializes in treating that. And I did spend a year as a patient at that clinic trying different occupational therapy tactics, different ways of trying to adjust myself to be more resilient, but it didn't work. And maybe that's because it also all happened, you know, in the year 2020. So like resilience was not really a thing that was available to much of anyone. (laughs) At this point, I would say fighting back against capitalism and the patriarchy and all of these forces that combine to be really oppressive for not just people with chronic fatigue syndrome, but everyone who's not a space billionaire. It's something I can only really do through my writing and, you know, whatever I can do over the internet from the, a heap of pillows, because a lot of days I can't really sit up at my desk. You know, this is, this is a good day. So I'm, I'm sitting at my desk. And when I sent you the picture of my desk for the fictionable Instagram, I probably should have been more honest and sent you a picture of a heap of pillows like Sean Bernie did, because that's certainly where I do a lot of my work. <laughs> Whatever works, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I've got the desk as sort of an aspirational, this is where I go on good days. <laughs> Having the nice desk set up is my promise to myself that there will be good days. There will be days when I can, you know, sit up like a person. Here's to that. Blimey. There's also something of a clue at the close of Sister Silky Siren Shark that one day the haze of contentment would lift, our sisters would open their mouths to sing the spells so long denied. Is that part of the answer then? Sisterhood? I think that broadly speaking, it's important to find connections to people who have a similar enough experience of going through the world. A common experience for a lot of people who are particularly affected by some elements of living in a patriarchal society is just it's the experience of second guessing your own thoughts you think this thing happened this was bad was it really that bad maybe it wasn't my boyfriend says it wasn't bad my boss says it wasn't bad is that because they're the ones who did it and they want me to believe it's not bad it can be i think very helpful to have access to someone else who has had similar experiences and is horrified by your experiences and who will say yes it was that bad It was real. You didn't make it up. I don't know if it's so much about sisterhood. It's just about finding companionship in whatever it is that you're going through in life. I think that applies to probably everyone, that it is more possible to get through life without being utterly miserable if you have people to share the experience with who can have empathy 
for you and what you experience because it's not unfamiliar to them. What about transformation as well? The silkies can't win as silkies. They have to grow fangs. I do think transformation is always an important thing to contemplate. If you can't get through the thing that you have to get through as you are, what is it that you need to become? I couldn't get through being ill and surviving COVID-19 and all of that. As a bicycle mechanic, it wasn't available to me anymore. I had to become something else. So I became a writer because for me, that was a way to do something with all of my days lying on the floor and not just lie on the floor. (laughs) It turned into something. I spent, I can't even think about how many hundreds and hundreds of hours I spent lying on the floor in that apartment. But, you know, I got the bread boy out of it and many of the other stories in my book as well. And I've made friends and connections and become part of a world that is different than the world that I was ensconced in before the pandemic hit and my whole life changed. I'm different now because of those things that I lived through and those things that everyone lived through. The world changed and I changed to be someone who could still live in the world as it is now. And that's a kind of victory, not a defeat. I think it is. I was doing something that in many ways that I liked, but I think that an interesting life contains a lot of different eras. (laughs) I have done quite a lot of different things in the three or so decades that I've been alive, and I wouldn't trade any of those things for just doing one of them for longer. I'd rather learn new things and meet new people and find out new facets of what kind of a thing I am (laughs) and can be. It's sort of the David Bowie approach to going through the world, you know, just try being someone else when you get bored or when something's not working anymore, just like come up with a new costume and a new mask and a new name and (laughs) live somewhere else. What about baking? It sounds stupid, but baking is another kind of transformation, isn't it? An act of creation, of making something good. Mm, I like to think of it as being like alchemy. You take this pasty base matter and you turn it into gold. (laughs) After this interview is over, I'm going to put a couple of loaves of bread in the oven and like every single time it will seem like magic to me because it is, it is this fantastic transformation of a bag of white powder and some water into a loaf of bread, which is a fantastic thing. Who doesn't like bread? Lots of people, I suppose, but (laughs) (laughs) but they're wrong. (laughs) What about pickles as well? I mean, a pickle is not only... A marvellous thing, but it's also a vote of confidence in the future. Mm, That's true. It absolutely is. We moved into the house we live in now last fall. And for some reason, I've been making pickles. I'd done it a little bit before, but it's more regular now. We've always got a few different kinds of pickles in the fridge. And it's a really exciting way to take whatever seasonal vegetables you're tired of. At this time of year in Nova Scotia, the easiest and cheapest vegetable to find is cabbage. There's so much cabbage. And a lot of other vegetables aren't great right now if you can find them. And one gets tired of cabbage. But if you make it into sauerkraut, you can season it with juniper berries, or you can season it with black currants, or you can put in dill and white pepper. And it's different. It becomes a different thing. It is, you're right, it is a vote of confidence in the future. It's, it takes about three weeks to make a good jar of sauerkraut. So, you know, you're slicing the cabbage and you're going, I'm going to be here in three weeks. <laughs> and this cabbage is going to be amazing in three weeks. Transformation is also at the heart of these stories. That and the gothic. I mean, you've got skeletons, ghosts, the whispering wind. Do you think dowdy old realism can measure up to the 21st century? I think it absolutely can. There are a few stories I've written 
I mean, technically, Two for Tea, the story with the skeleton, there's nothing in there that's not realism. It's unlikely, but everything in that story could happen. There is no actual fantastical element. It just feels that way because we're experiencing the story through someone's Having imagination. a cup of tea with a skeleton. Yeah, exactly. You know, you could technically find a skeleton in a cave. And if you were a very certain kind of little girl, you might decide that the skeleton was your new best friend and take your tea set out there to have tea parties with the skeleton and talk to this skeleton who's a great listener because they never talk back and they never tell you you're wrong. <laughs> they never tell you what kind of a girl you should and shouldn't be. You can just imagine the person that you want to be in the presence of this person who is dead. <laughs> I do find that I'm very drawn to stories that don't have as many realist elements or at least have some kind of element of the unreal because I think that my experience of life in the past few years has been quite surreal and stories that are strictly in a realist tradition often don't feel to me like they're telling the truth. Another one of my stories that's based in some of my own personal experience, although it happened quite differently, is about a garden center employee who is sexually harassed by their boss and turns into wax and melts under just the pressure of this awful, toxic workplace environment. For most of the stories I've written, I can't imagine another way that I would write them. And I think that's particularly true for the stories that have the surreal and fantastical elements. For me, those are the best tools that I have for telling the truth in a particular situation. I don't always know what it is that has happened, but there is some way in which telling a story that is very surreal for me is the most truthful thing because that's the way it feels to go through so much of life. It just, it feels completely unreal. Real life feels so impossible. I want to talk about Cire Perdu as well because there's a moment when Valerie goes to a bar that's like a, a very Andromeda place, you say. The decor is half landfill, half forest, familiar objects made alien by unsettling juxtapositions, which sounds to me basically like a literary manifesto. Is that your method in a nutshell? I wouldn't describe it as a manifesto. I think I was just trying to imagine the kind of place that that character Andromeda would feel at home. She's a character who's turned up in the background of a couple of my stories. I don't feel like I know her, which is, I suppose, why she's always in the background, having strange effects on other people's lives. But I've known a few people who were a bit like her, I think, or who had the kind of effect on my life that she has on other people's lives sometimes. Sometimes I try to understand the characters that I'm writing about through the places that they make their homes or the places that they feel at home in. There are a lot of strange houses in the stories. Um, there are a lot of very isolated places where, you know, if there's a house, it's probably haunted. If it's not haunted, it's near something that is. <laughs> Everything is haunted. The world in the 21st century is just a fundamentally haunted place. We're all just living in a colossal ghost story <laughs> that never ends. <laughs> it's just that that thing of familiar objects being made alien by unsettling juxtapositions, that seems to be very much at the centre of what your writing is getting to. I think that does feel right. I'm very interested by the ways that warped experiences can make familiar places feel alien. It's an experience that I've had. You change and maybe the world around you doesn't change, but it feels like it has. Everything is different now. 
even if it's the same old thing it's always been and it's just you that's changed it still feels like you're in an alien place now it's something i'm very drawn to reading stories that play out like that as well where it's just something that should be familiar that should be mundane is suddenly dangerous or horrible (laughs) there's nothing inherently awful about really any of these places or objects or ideas it's just that something shifts and then everything is strange I'm wondering if it's also just a way of making something new, making something important, something true, if you want, by taking something we already know and turning it around, making it strange. I do like to do that, I think. I think I like to make things a bit uncomfortable. I'm a person who is fundamentally always uncomfortable. I'm almost never comfortable, and I like playing with that. Something that I like in my fiction is to try and make people a bit uncomfortable. I don't want to write things that are soothing. (laughs) I want to try and convey something of the experience that I have going through the world. And it's a little bit like going fishing. You just put out the bait and see if anything bites. It's a kind of, I guess, sort of warped curiosity. What can I do that maybe I shouldn't do? We'll keep scanning the waters. That was Ariel, Mark and Jack. To read The Bread Boy as well as exclusive stories from Linda Mannheim, Richard Smith, Robert Newworth and Liam Hogan, fire up that backyard oven and head to fictional.world. For £20 you'll get a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics from all over the world, which you can enjoy on your mobile, tablet or laptop computer. You'll also gain access to our ever-growing archive, with stories from Isabel Greenberg, Alan Mabonku, M. John Harrison, Joyce Carol Oates, and many more. And don't forget our blog, where you can read the Eisner Award-winning comic artist Peter Cooper's Hymn to the Insect Kingdom and glance into his sketchbook. You can always tell us what you think of our podcast, our blogs, and our stories by adding us on Mastodon, Instagram, or Twitter, or drop us an email on info at fictionable.world. That's the address for your thoughts in audio form, too. One way you might wind up on a forthcoming edition of the Fictional Podcast. Next time, Robert Newworth gets all bashful. I'm not cut out to be a programmer. I have lots of problems with languages that aren't language. And, and reads from his story, The Disambiguation. With thanks to Ariel, Mark and Jack, that's all for this week. So from me, Richard Lee, and all at Fictionable Towers, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Thank you.